Man, what a joy it is to be here with you in Alberta. It's been a little bit since I've been out here. Uh, during the summer, we actually moved all of our student ministry activities on Wednesday uh, out here so that we could get some momentum going for our youth ministry. So if you don't know, every Wednesday night, uh, there is a youth meeting that is right here uh, in this room. Uh, there's a children's ministry meeting that's happening right after the service today. I know some of them are out, but if you uh, are serving with our with our children, with our teenagers, I just want you to know how much we appreciate you, how much we appreciate the way that you prepare to teach the Bible to them, uh, how you lead small group discussions, how you uh, spend hours preparing crafts uh, for uh, our kids to be able to see uh, the gospel in action. So we want to say thank you so much for that. Uh, I've met some new people this morning, which is so encouraging to me. My name is John Vickers. Uh, if you, if we've never met before, uh, it's my joy to serve as the Next Generations pastor here at The Point Church. I'm so thankful for uh, our Next Generations team with Miss Karen, who does uh, so much in and organizing and in preparing for all of the uh, teaching and activities that our kids do. And y'all, I'm so thankful for Nathan Duckworth for the way that he has uh, kind of helped just this vision that we have to reach the community of Alberta, specifically with our teenagers for the gospel. That he's not only that he's able to come in and sing, and he does a great job with that, but man, his heart for students to see them changed uh, is just something that's so encouraging to me. So I want to talk to you about a few things this morning before we get into our actual preaching time. Uh, and one of those things is in the back, there is a frame that says, who's your one? Uh, inside of that, there are some ping pong balls that have some people's names on them. Uh, we're going to change the process of what that looks like a little bit, but I want to tell you a little bit about what Who's Your One is. It is a campaign from the Southern Baptist Convention uh, for our people to find someone in your life, in your sphere of influence, who is lost that you can share the gospel of Jesus with. Uh, the idea is that sometimes we look at this big world and we see just the vast lostness in the world and we get so overwhelmed by that, but we're called to be faithful to what Jesus has told us to do. At the end of our service, uh, we say something called the Great Commission. It's literally our marching orders to go and make disciples, uh, and I hope that you have identified who your one is. So in the future, uh, next week when you come in, we'll have uh, a couple baskets of ping pong balls back there. Some of them will be white. If you have prayed and there is someone that God has laid on your heart for you to share the gospel with, we want to invite you to take one of those, drop it uh, right in the back of that frame as a representation of someone that you are praying for. Okay, And there's going to be some orange ones back there as well, and those are for someone that you've identified that you have gone and shared the gospel with. Okay, so our goal is for that to be a physical representation of encouragement to one another that we are active in the mission that God has called us to do. So my prayer is that the next time I'm here, which is going to be in uh, three or four weeks, that, man, there are going to be so many more ping pong balls in that frame back there representing people that we are praying for to be changed by the gospel of Jesus. Okay, we want to see our community changed. And I think that there is sometimes there's a little bit of a stigma about evangelism. Um, I One of the things that, that I work on regularly is studying culture. And in Gen Z, which is really only a few years younger than me, um, a lot of people like to throw some hate on them, uh, calling them millennials. And, you know, hey, that's that's me. That's 
Joe's a little, he's Gen X, barely, just barely. Uh, but people, people forget that a little bit. So the young people today uh, have been uh, polled and researched, and the majority of them uh, are starting to think that maybe evangelism's not something that should be a priority that we shouldn't be pushing our beliefs on people that are around us. But if we look in the scriptures, we see a clear command from Jesus for us to go and to share our faith and be vocal about that, okay? So there's some kind of stigma about evangelism in the church, okay? There is. Sometimes people think, oh, that's just for the church leaders, or, oh, my job is uh, to invite someone to church. But Man, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. You are empowered to share the love of Jesus with people yourself, the relationships that you have right where you're at. You know, we have just gotten through the process in Perdido Key of interviewing some deacons, and one of the questions that's, that's on that is, when was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? And I'm really afraid that a lot of times we think that's just for people like deacons or like pastors but that's for people like you. That's for everyone who has been saved. And frankly, I think that we're being sinful if we're not being obedient to the things that Jesus tells us to do. Okay, and he calls us to share the gospel. And I promise you, it's worth a few minutes of awkwardness in you sharing your faith. Because the cost of that for someone else, for us not sharing, could be eternity apart from God. And it's worth a couple minutes of awkwardness. It's worth uh, a few minutes of us opening up our heart. So don't be discouraged if you think, man, this person may know some things about me. They may think that, you know, I don't really live these things out. They may think that I'm a hypocrite. Is it worth that risk for you to just open up to share the love of Jesus with someone because none of us claim to be perfect. We don't claim to earn our salvation. It's something that is done for us on the cross of Christ. And we want to make sure that you're equipped to do that. There's, a, there's all kinds of ways that you can share the gospel with people. Uh, when, when I was young, someone shared the Roman road with me that was uh, a little bit intensive in the scriptures, and I certainly don't want to belittle that. Sometimes that's kind of hard for us to know. Pastor Tim has spent some time talking to us about the three circles method that, man, in the beginning was uh, God's creation, and it was perfect, and everything was good, and then sin entered into the world, which leads us to brokenness, and then we're redeemed through, uh, through the blood of Jesus, and we are reconciled to him. And we've provided a really easy way for you to be able to share the gospel that's actually right up on the screen. That's just a new uh, logo that we've put in. You go back to that, Garrett, for me. Uh, the, the top arrow would represent God. The bottom arrow would represent man. And if you look really closely, those two things are not quite touching, okay? There's a little bit of a gap that's there. That gap represents sin. And if we put the cross of Jesus over that, we are redeemed into, uh, into relationship with God. So we want to make sure that we are actively pursuing people for the gospel of Jesus. Gospel presentation should not be things that we talk about over a lifetime, but over a week, over a month. These should be things that we're striving for. Now, I was listening to a, a podcast earlier this week uh, that a guy named David Platt was on. You may have heard of him. He wrote some books before uh, the Radical series, and he was the, over the International Mission Board for a little while. Now he is a teaching pastor uh, outside of Washington, D.C. at a church. And whenever he came into this role, they started to do some research with their people. Uh, and what they found was kind of interesting. And I think somebody like David, who, man, he's just got such a passion for the gospel. Surely he's got some things figured out, right? So 43% of their people said that they were growing a little spiritually or not at all. 
want you to think about that. Almost half of the people in this church were growing a little spiritually or not at all. 62% said that they hardly ever share the gospel. Two-thirds of the people in his church, the guy that was over the international mission board, uh, are not sharing the gospel regularly, okay? And that metric that they were using for hardly ever or never was less than two times, so not, not at all or shared the gospel one time over the last year. So I want you to think about yourself for just a minute. When was the last time you've shared the gospel? When was the last time that you shared with someone what Jesus has done for you? When was the last time that you shared that the work has been done, that we don't have to just work and work and become this kind of perfect being that doesn't exist because the only being that has existed was the God-man, was Jesus who came to us in the form of a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, who healed people, who made the blind see who spoke and the wind and the waves listened to him and he gave his life on the cross for us and then three days later rose from the dead. That is the message that we should be sharing with people. A couple minutes of being uncomfortable is worth someone else's, someone else's salvation, that eternal punishment for unbelief. So we're getting into our passage for today. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Colossians chapter 1. We have been in this series called It's All About Jesus, and I hope that you know that, that it is all about Jesus. Last week, we looked at one of the most important Christological passages in all of the New Testament. That's just a big word to talk about. This is who Jesus is, okay? Uh, So he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I'm not going to read everything that we went over last week, but over and over and over again in that passage, you see all things, all people, all of creation. It's all about Jesus. We like to think that little bits of our life are things that we can take and we can kind of put it in our back pocket and say, hey, God, you can have all of this, but I'm going to hang on to this thing or whatever the case may be for that, but it is all about Jesus. All of our life is. He is not only the Son of God, He is God. All things were created, all thrones, all dominions, all rulers, all authorities. He holds all things together. Through Him, all things are reconciled, and His glory is proclaimed through all of creation. He impacts everything. Can we pray together before we get into our text? Lord, we thank You for Jesus. God, I thank you that it's not up to me to earn my salvation, Lord, because I know I would never measure up. And God, I know if we were being honest, nobody in here would think that they could either. Lord, we thank you for the perfected work of Jesus on the cross for us. Lord, that you loved us so much that while we were still sinners, you sent him for us. So God, I pray that as we get into this, this really heavy application part of Scripture, that we would see that it's all about Jesus. We would see that the things that Paul is striving for are always to point people back to you. And God, I pray that you'd open our eyes and our hearts to what you are calling us to do in sharing the gospel in our own lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to read our passage together starting in verse 24. Uh, down through chapter 2 and verse 5. It says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I am to make known the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. 
To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, in, which is Christ in you. The hope that we, must pre- that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom all or in whom are hidden all the treasures of of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Now, we have just come out of a very uh, strong doctrinal passage that Paul gave, and we're moving into something that is far more uh, application-based for us. This concept of being called to action is something that we talk about in church often, but I believe it's something that we don't do enough. Okay, if we're being really honest for a second, if we come to church every week and we sing some songs and we hear some preaching and we leave and our hearts have not changed and it doesn't impact the way that we live, we're really wasting our time if we really get down to that. Instead, we should be changed by the things that we see and the things that we learn about God. When I was in seminary, I was traveling from uh, the Mississippi coast over to New Orleans a couple times a week. Uh, One semester, I was taking a class called Systematic Theology, which comes with a lot of big books and has a lot of big words uh, in it as you you work through that. And uh, my absolute favorite professor was teaching this class. It was a guy named Dr. Brooks. He has a church in New Orleans that's doing incredible things for the kingdom of God. Uh, But one day specifically, uh, Dr. Brooks was off on a mission trip or something, and a doctoral student was filling in for him, okay? Uh, This guy is uh, now, he's a pastor over in North Louisiana, uh, but we were talking about uh, the material that we were reading. That chapter specifically was on the grace of God and the glory of God and how those two uh, concepts interact. And we're talking through this, and people are asking questions, and we're having some dialogue, and he just stops and says, guys, can I just be honest with y'all? Whenever I read through doctrinal pieces like this, sometimes it's really difficult for us to wrap our mind around, and then all of a sudden something clicks, and you start to see things like God actually loving us so much that he sent us Jesus who, yeah, he's the son of God, but he is God in the flesh, and we start to see that God himself gave himself for us on the cross And we see how glorious of a redemption that that is, this scandal of grace that God has done. Man, that leads us to action. It commands us to have action. And if even if we're not singing, we should be stopping and worshiping him for all of the things that he's done for us. Because his glory is shown in his compassion for us. Something that's so incredible, and we should be so humbled that God would love sinners like us, that we would, he would send Jesus for us, because the scriptures say while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So today, we're going to be talking about Christ-centered ministry. And this passage we're going to be digging into today is the conclusion of Paul's introduction. All right, I want you to think about that. We've been in this series for like, 
what, this is week four, we're coming to the conclusion of his introduction to the people, okay? So Paul does not been in person to this church, uh, Colossae, but he has heard about them. He's writing a letter to them. He is encouraging them, and he has to line some things up to get things right before he starts talking about things that are going on right inside of their fellowship. Okay, so our first point today in Christ-centered ministry, we suffer, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. We suffer just as Christ suffered. Paul was suffering to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul was suffering to bring the gospel to Gentiles. Now, there is a confusing phrase in that verse that we're going to come back to in a minute, but over the course of the last century in South Korea in 1900, there was 1% believers. 1% of the, of the population of South Korea believed in Jesus. To put that into perspective, it's about the size of Florida and California pushed together this country. And in, a, in the course of 100 years, there in, 19, in 1900, there's 1%. In the year 2000, there were 10 million people who professed faith in Jesus. In just 100 years, 10 million people. Now, I want you to think about that. Think back to 1900, there's that 1%. Okay, they don't have the technologies that we have. They can't tweet about their faith or throw something on their Instagram story, sharing a Bible verse. They had to go from person to person to share their faith. They had a one that they were obedient to sharing the gospel with. I want you to get your mind wrapped around this as this is a huge success story of someone finding one person, of someone sharing the gospel with one person, of being obedient to what Jesus has called us to do. The gospel still has the same power today that it did then. It still has the same power the day that Jesus shed his blood for our sins that it does today. And we are called to share that with one another. We are called to suffer together for the sake of the gospel. Paul's sufferings are to be understood in some strange sense, not as his own, but in Christ. Okay, in verse 24, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, I need you to understand something. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the ultimate perfect sacrifice. There was nothing lacking in that. So what Paul is talking about is about the work that's to be done in the future, the work that God is calling us into now. The scripture says that we were created for good works that he's planned uh, ahead of time. It is for us to be obedient in sharing the gospel. Paul is not saying for one second that he has gone and given his life for the church and he has forgiven them of their sins. But he's saying we are coming together for this mission that God sent Jesus for to reveal himself to the people around them. So we are invited into this incredible mission to make known the name of God through the incarnate Christ. We are co-sufferers for the gospel. Jesus himself says in this life, you're going to experience trouble. Jesus himself tells us that the world is going to reject you because of my sake. Jesus says that but it is worth it because his atoning power is worth it. Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus must be moved forward at all costs. And if we really got into looking at Paul's life, that means in shipwreck, in illness, in prison, in public trial, and even in death, 
that we are supposed to promote the gospel of Jesus. Paul's telling us to quit making excuses and do what Jesus is calling us to do. And Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And he has commanded us to share the gospel. Paul's not adding to the achievement of the cross, but he is saying that for a similar purpose, we suffer together. We suffer together for the cross of Christ to uh, be extended to as many people as possible. And I think a lot of times we talk about suffering in bad light. Nobody likes to suffer, right? We don't look forward to that and say, oh, yes, you know, Miles, when your finger was hurt, you weren't like, yes, I really want to experience that pain, right? That's not exactly the kind of suffering that Paul's talking about. But when we talk about suffering, whether that's physical, whether that is spiritual torment that we have over something, whether that is, is depression, man, these things are real. These things are things that we struggle with. But when we are suffering for the cause of Christ, we're exactly where God is calling us to be. When we suffer, Jesus never promises us that when we follow him, everything's going to be great and wonderful. We're literally brought to, from death to life through the faith that we have in him, and that should trump any other circumstances that we have. Yet sometimes when we talk about sharing our faith with someone, they say, well, you know, they, they'd rather go watch a football game instead of, instead of come to church, and you know, that's, just my, no, that's not the kind of suffering that we're talking about. If we really looked at Paul's life and the, the circumstances that are around the church, it's being persecuted. And we like to talk about persecution a lot. And we like to say things like, well, you know, they don't allow prayer in schools. Uh, well, okay, they do because we're having see you at the poll at Alberta High School on Wednesday morning and students are coming and they're going to uh, publicly uh, pray out loud to God. I just can't go in there and, and do those things or teachers can't. Prayer is absolutely allowed in schools, okay? That's not persecution. Nobody's coming down there to say, hey, you're going to go to prison because of your faith in Jesus. This is the persecution that Paul is facing and that this church that he's writing to is facing. In fact, so many times throughout history, when the church is persecuted, it explodes. It is spread out everywhere. We see the Jews being dispersed from, from small uh, places uh, geographically into other places throughout the world. And through God's grace, his love and his mercy is spread into those places through suffering there in, in the book of Acts, Paul is with a group of people. He's preparing to go back into Jerusalem, and the people have, uh, they have a word from the Lord, okay? And they say, Paul, you can't go. We don't want you to go to Jerusalem because if you go there, you're going to get arrested. There's people that are waiting on you. Then I think anyone in their right mind would say, you know, yeah, if we knew that, that our friend was going to be arrested or that harm was in their way, we would want to say, no, no, you don't need to go. And Paul said, you know what, that's right. But this is exactly what God has called me for. So he goes, and sure enough, when he gets to Jerusalem, he is arrested. He is taken in. And then what happens throughout the next 10 chapters or so in the book of Acts is this public trial with all eyes on the things that Paul is talking about. And the gospel is presented and proclaimed to an entire nation and even into uh, the higher-ups of the Roman government. Paul is suffering for the cause of Christ. And he says, I count all of these good things at a loss for what the gospel has done. There's a purpose for suffering in Christ. If the gospel is moving forward, that suffering is worth it. 
if the gospel is being moved forward, the suffering is worth it. In Christ-centered ministry, we speak. In Christ-centered ministry, we speak. Verses 25 through 28 says, Of which I became a minister to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ Jesus in you, the hope of glory. In him we proclaim, in him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. These few verses here are very significant for a couple of reasons. First, we see that Paul is a servant of the gospel. He has already told us, but now we're seeing his mission of being a servant into the church. Now, of course, we don't see Paul's ultimate mission as sometimes what we talk about serving people. He's not setting up tables and and going on visits, but he is serving the church by teaching and by proclaiming the gospel to them. This is not just making the word of God known that he's doing, but he's making the full gospel known. If you were here a couple weeks ago, Pastor Tim was talking about how sometimes we don't always preach a full gospel. We can't uh, really even talk about the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus before we understand what sin is in our life. In verse 26, the word of God is the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the saints, which is Christ in you, the hope of your salvation. Now, in the Old Testament, They didn't have this. Jesus had not come yet. He had not walked on the earth. He had not lived a sinless life. He had not given his life because he had not come in the flesh yet. But even when Jesus did come, the Jewish people who knew all of the scriptures totally missed who he was. They looked straight over it because their idea of God's redemption was small. Their idea of God's redemption was Israel, was this plot of land that goes all the way back to this covenant that God made with Abraham. And because their idea was so limited, because in their, in their ideology, they thought that God didn't make good on that promise. Okay, I want you to see that very quickly. If we were to go back into the book of Genesis, we were to see uh, God make a covenant with Abraham. Uh, Abraham didn't have a son when that covenant was made. Eventually, God shows himself faithful, and they have a son named Isaac, and Isaac uh, has a son, and that son's name is changed to Israel, right? This chosen land, and he has, uh, he has a whole slew of sons. They sell one off into slavery, they come up with an idea, oh, we're going to kill him. One of them says, no, 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 let's just dig a hole, let's sell him off, let's make some money for ourselves. And in God's faithfulness, Joseph was not killed or was not someone who was forgotten in slavery. Through God's faithfulness, Joseph was brought in to suffer. He was thrown into prison for a false allegation that came on him, but he was suffering for God's plan, because eventually he, he interacts with a butcher and a baker who come to him with dreams, and God says, Joseph, I'm going to give you the interpretation of this dream. And he is brought up into uh, the office with Pharaoh, eventually becoming the governor of the land, and God provides for his people through Joseph's position. His family is able to survive this famine. Then eventually, 
a new Pharaoh who does not know Joseph is brought into power and this, and he has this idea that all of Joseph's descendants who are in the land are too numerous and they're going to overthrow the kingdom. So he orders all of the baby boys to be killed and through faith and through suffering, this woman puts her little boy in a basket and puts him down into the river. The Pharaoh's daughter finds him and they, she raises him as one of her own, but God has plans for him because eventually he starts to look out and see that he looks more like the people out there than the people in here. And he goes out and he encounters God in a burning bush out of all things. Over and over and over and over again, it looks like God's plan is going to stop. Over and over again, the people plan well and the people's plans are stopped, but God is still faithful because Moses comes back and he encounters this Pharaoh and eventually, of course, we know he lets the people go. And then they come to a Red Sea that they can't get apart. And God says, Moses, pick up your staff. I'm going to part it. So Moses lifts his staff. God parts the Red Sea. They're delivered. But this concept comes in of our own sin because the people complain. They wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And eventually the next generation goes into the promised land. But there's a problem with the promised land, right? There's still people who are living in their land. This is a place that God has called for them to move into, and there's people there. Not just people, there are giants. The descendants of the Anak are there. The people are scared. They don't want to go in, but God makes a way. They go and they march around Jericho for days, and they blow on their trumpets. The walls come down. God delivers the people to them, and we see story after story after story of this happen in this conquest. But because of the people's sin, there are still others in the land. And the people start to think that God has not been good on his word and they don't like the prophet Samuel and they complain and then God gives them a king and Saul and Saul ultimately turns his back on God. God delivers them a new king in David. And man, time and time again, I'm going to stop there for the sake of time as far as your journey through the Old Testament, but I hope you get the picture. When we're planning on things, they don't always go according to plan. When we're trying to be faithful to our own agendas, things aren't going to go according to plan. Whenever we keep the, the message of the gospel at the forefront, God's plan is going to continue to go. God is so much bigger than the Point Church. God is so much bigger than Alberta or the state of Alabama or the United States, okay? If you can believe that, God is bigger than that. And we are called to be obedient in sharing his good news with people. Uh, St. Francis once said to preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Um, How many of you, uh, just if you could just raise, somebody, you've heard this phrase before, you may be the only Bible that anybody ever, anybody ever heard that? You may be the only Bible. Okay. I heard that a lot growing up in Sunday school, okay, and I thought that was good, but if I'm, this is just confession time for me to you, I use that as a cop-out. Oh, if I'm just nice to somebody, you know, oh, I'm just, I just showed them the love of Jesus, even though I didn't share the gospel with them. Or, y'all, I promise you, this is, this is kind of funny, but I had a student with me whenever we were in, on the Mississippi coast, and we were going through a drive through and there was a homeless guy sitting up there, and he said, man, we, we should do something for him. I said, you know what, you're right. We're going to pull up. We're going to give him some money. And, he, and the student said, man, I just think that this is, uh, you know, God wants us to do something here. I'm like, okay. So we pull up. We talk to him for a minute. Um, I reach into my wallet, I hand him a $5 bill, and he gets this big smile on his face, and he runs off. And the student says, man, he just did some, we just did something for the kingdom. 
y'all, that man ran into a gas station and came out with a six-pack, and I'm like, we didn't do anything for the kingdom because we went and did something, a, a small act of obedience, okay? If we were really being obedient, we would have shared the gospel in that moment. So this is not what Jesus commands us to do. Instead, what Jesus is commanding us to do is to use words, is to know how to share the gospel with people, is to know how to share your faith. It doesn't matter what kind of evangelistic tool that you use as long as you use something. You don't have to know everything because we can lean on the strength of the Holy Spirit. We have got this idea that somehow praying a prayer is the finish line. That somehow speaking the gospel to someone is the finish line for us. But really, that's the starting line. Man, that's the starting line. Because if we were to go back into the text, it talks about growing in maturity in Christ, of sharing the mystery of Christ with them, that we can present everyone mature in Christ. We're not doing our job if we just share the gospel with somebody and move on, okay? We have to nurture the people that we share the gospel with. There's an element of discipleship that comes into play here. We've missed the mark if we only share the gospel. We have to be able to present one another mature in Christ. What does that look like? Well, it looks a lot like what, at least what we hope church membership looks like. That we come into a gathering like this where we can encourage each other Because, y'all, I know behind every single person here, there's something going on that nobody knows about. Whether you're a 12-year-old or whether you're a 65-year-old or anywhere in between, there is something going on in your life that you are struggling with, that you have hardship with, that nobody really knows about. And we hope that the the corporate gathering is a time where we can encourage one another and help us move along in our walk with Christ. Which is where this text is going. Point number three, in Christ-centered ministry, we sweat. We toil, we work, we're burdened with grief. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Y'all, Christ-centered ministry is hard because we're dealing with people, right? Um, man, that was a concept that I didn't really understand for a long time. Uh, when I, right when I finished college, I graduated and I started seminary. I was working as a bank teller. And uh, all kinds of people come into the bank, okay? Uh, Man, there were people that came into that place that I had never seen anyone like. There were people that came in with ideas about, I don't know, things about their, their money that made absolutely no sense whatsoever, okay? But in ministry, we're dealing with people, and people have all kinds of ideas and thoughts, okay? And if we're to be focused on Christ, we have to continually struggle with pointing people back to the cross. I work with students on a weekly basis, uh, and if you're a parent of a teenager, uh, first, uh, I have sympathy for you. Uh, Second, um, it's very different to pastor and to parent a teenager. I don't know how to parent a teenager. I don't have one. Um, but even, even on the, the pastoral side of that, man, teenagers will love you one minute and they will hate you the next and they won't have anything to do with anything that you did. It has something to do with something from somebody else, right? Or an idea that they've concocted on their own. But this we toil for. We come back over and over again because the gospel is worth it, okay? It's worth struggling for. If you've ever played a sport or if you've ever had any kind of 
uh, physical fitness goal, uh, there is something that you're going to experience at some point, right? Hopefully sooner than later if you're working towards that, and that is sweat, right? Your body working tries to cool itself off because you have placed a stress on your muscles, on your body that you're working. Your breathing becomes labored because of the exercise that's happening, okay? I hope you're starting to get the idea that we uh, put stress on ourselves when we struggle for the kingdom, okay? When we exercise for long periods of time, that is endurance training, right? When we uh, exercise for short periods of time, those are typically done in high intensity, okay? Both of those have goals, um, but I want you to know that there, is, there are people that God is going to place in your life that are endurance people. Man, over and over and over again, you find yourself struggling to make known the goodness of Jesus to you. This may be somebody in your family. It may be one of your best friends. But it's someone who, over time, you're going to be continually sharing the gospel with. Don't grow weary in that toil. This is an endurance. Paul talks a lot about running the race with endurance in the way that we live our lives. But then there's other times where, you know, you have a shorter workout. It may be someone that you uh, walk by in Publix. Uh, it may be someone that you have a conversation with in your neighborhood walking around that God says, hey, this is the moment, this is the time for you to be able to share the gospel. Okay? Both of those are important. Now, these gospel conversations that we're talking about, man, we really, I'm very convicted about this. We need to make these weekly, daily if possible, but at least weekly, that we are continually sharing the gospel with people because it is worth it, that we are continually working out, that we are continually placing stress on our bodies. And when the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all of these things through Christ who strengthens me, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about for the cross, we can struggle. For the cross, we can toil. For the cross, we can share our faith. And number four, in Christ-centered ministry, we struggle. We struggle. Now, the focus shifts just a little bit because before it is for the sake of the gospel. But here we struggle with and for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Y'all, life is hard. Things happen. Things go wrong. The people of Israel knew that as we just talked about. All of their best laid plans got thrown to the wayside. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, But I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those in Laodicea and for those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance, of understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom, we, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We don't only struggle in sharing the gospel, but we struggle or fight or toil or agonize, which is really what that word means. We agonize with one another that we should be encouraged and unified in Christ, to encourage one another to be unified. Y'all, I am so thankful that the leadership of our church um, values unity. Uh, literally, on a, on a board, uh, when we have our leadership ministry team meetings, there's values that are up on, on the board, and one of them is authentic unity. And man, we have to work for that sometimes, but ultimately, we have to be unified uh, in Christ. And I wish that, you know, every church around would, would be like that, but the reality is it's not. Because of this sin problem, because of 
uh, all kinds of different reasons, but ultimately it comes down to pride, thinking that we know better than God does, knowing that we have to humble ourselves, and we have to remember that there are false teachers all around these people that Paul is writing to who's saying you have to be unified against these things. You can't give concessions. We can't say, oh, well, this work of grace that God has done for us on the cross is not good enough. He's saying, y'all, that is everything, and you cannot give up on that. These false teachers that are around them are talking about knowledge. Pastor Tim talked a lot about gnosis uh, last week. Um, Paul uses a high concentration of this language in this passage. He talks about uh, making known or wisdom, complete understanding, know, wisdom, knowledge. Those are all words that he uses to combat this and to tell the people that we have to be unified on the finished work of Jesus. And there is nothing else that we can be unified on that is going to last. There's nothing else that we can be unified on that is going to last. Now, there are false teachers all around us today. There are. Not all of them are religious. A lot of them, a lot of them are because in any kind of other religion, there's some kind of teaching that happens. But the most common form that I see, at least in the culture, is telling you that there is no truth and everything is good and you can pick your way and I can pick mine and in the end it's all going to work its way out. And over time that has kind of changed a little bit. Um, this generation may say, you know, you do you. Whatever works for you is great. You know, uh, whatever works for me is great. At the end of the day, everything's going to be fine. But we strive and we toil and we suffer and we sweat for the gospel of Jesus because that is the only thing that we can stand on. The only thing that we can stand on is the cross. Paul also uses the, the words orderly and firm uh, in, in verse number three or verse number four. Number five, in Christ-centered ministry, we are settled in Christ. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, I am with you in the Spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness in your faith in Jesus. Just like he's talking to them about these false teachers, it continues into these verses. And from what we can tell from his language is that they have not been deceived yet. They've not been deceived yet, but... Paul knows that the enemy is always lurking to attack his church. The enemy is always lurking to attack you. If you are claiming uh, the cross, if you are claiming faith, this sin nature that we have likes to rear its ugly head by saying you are enough on your own. You don't need anyone. You've got this figured out. Whenever we start to try to do everything in our own strength, that's whenever everything goes poorly. Paul is talking to them about being aware of these false teachers that are among them. And man, I could spend all day talking about small, nuanced sects of Christianity that has just missed it because Jesus is not in his rightful place on the throne as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But we can find rest in the finished work of Jesus. Paul uses these words orderly and firm in verse 5, and these are probably military metaphors from the best that we can tell, is that the church is drawn up in this proper battle array with a solid wall of defense, namely faith in Christ, 
and Paul is there in spirit like a general inspecting the troops before battle, even though he's not there in the flesh. He's encouraging them, saying, there is something very difficult coming your way, and you need to be ready. So church, I hope that we're settled in Christ and that we are ready for this attack that's coming. We're going to transition into a little bit of a time of response, and I have a few questions for you. Uh, As we draw to a close, when was the last time that you shared the gospel with someone? First. Second, is the gospel in a place of supremacy in your life? Do you filter all of your other ideas through that concept that the gospel is worth it? Because you can see it in the way that you spend your time. You can see it in uh, even, even the friends that you spend time with. And I don't just mean that we surround ourselves with bad people. I mean, man, we can surround ourselves with great people who are going to edify us and pat us on the back and make us feel good, and we can never venture out into the mission field because we stay tied up to ourselves. Do you have the revelation that Jesus Christ is what this ministry is all about? Do you have a Christ-centered ministry in your life?